For those of you who are visiting with us or uh, just not here too often, we are in a series through the book of Colossians. This is a letter from the Apostle Paul written in the first century to a church in what is now modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. And there was a problem going on in that church, and there was a problem that made Paul want to write this letter to them. And the problem was that there were different ideas about how to be personally fulfilled or mature or complete. Some people were saying that there are other paths to spiritual maturity, other ways to pursue, maybe through a system of self-discipline, maybe through a list of rules, maybe through some ecstatic experiences. And what Paul is saying is this, no, it's Jesus and Jesus alone that can provide your satisfaction and fulfillment. That's why he says earlier in this letter that he was so passionate about preaching and teaching Christ to people because he says that you are complete in Christ, proclaiming Christ to you so that you may may be mature in Christ. Now that's the goal of life. And that's the only way to reach that goal. That's why the central exhortation, the main point that Paul is getting at here in this letter is found in chapter 2 verses 6 and 7. We looked at this uh, a few weeks ago when he says, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. You've accepted Christ as your master, as the one who determines the destiny for your life, as the source of your satisfaction and salvation. Now you keep on taking every decision in life, step by step, day after day, week after week, as Jesus Christ is your Lord. There's no other way. But then he warns them about some things. He says there's going to be a temptation to leave that path and follow other ways to spiritual maturity and he occupies the rest of this chapter warning, warning them against certain things. And that's what takes us to verse 16 in chapter 2. Now, many people assume that the Christian faith is in essence a set of religious practices or a standard of morality or even the essence of the Christian faith is found in some experience. It's a mystical experience perhaps. Many, many people believe that about Christianity. That Christianity is found in something that I've, I've done or keep on doing on a regular basis or some mystical inexplicable experience that I had or in achieving some standard of morality. There's certain things I do and I don't do and that's what it means to be a Christian. Many people believe that. And that's why people that, that think that, both those who claim to be Christians and those who don't, are often surprised to find that the people that first started following Jesus were not the most religious people in Jesus' day. The people that originally, at the very beginning, began to believe and follow Jesus were actually the people of very common careers and sometimes people of ill repute. Fishermen, some government employees, some of who were absolutely despised by the Jewish people because they worked for the Roman government, tax collectors, and even prostitutes. These were not on the upper echelons of society. They're not the ones who are the most moral. In fact, the people that first followed, started following Jesus were those who were on the outcasts, former uh, sinners in that way. And that's, that's why it also comes as a surprise to people when they come across a passage like this one, in which Paul is saying... Don't let anyone pass judgment on you in questions of, and then he lists some religious rituals. And then later on in this passage, he lists certain rules. He says, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to certain kinds of rules? You see, what the Bible reveals to us about Christianity 
is that its essence is not achieving a certain stand of morality. Nor is it having a certain mystical experience, but it's rather something that happens in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is getting at throughout this book when he says in, for instance, chapter 2 and verse 12. He says, having been buried with him. Look at verse 20 of chapter 2. If with Christ you died, you died with Christ. And look at chapter 3 and verse 1. You've been raised with Christ. So the essence of the Christian faith, of what it means to be a Christian, is not achieving a certain standard of morality. It's not having gone through some sort of inexplicable, mystical experience, nor it is keeping a bunch of rules. Rather, in its essence, it has to do with a spiritual experience, uh, a relationship, rather, with Jesus Christ that's described as having died with him and having been risen with him through faith. And it's upon that basis that Paul is urging his people to draw upon the riches of their relationship with Christ rather than exchanging the riches for trinkets that don't really matter. You see what rituals and mere experiences and rules have in common is that they work from the outside in. And what the Bible reveals about human nature is that the problem is far deeper than that. The Bible, like a master physician... If you've ever been to a doctor and the doctor's about to deliver a diagnosis to you, the Bible looks you straight in the eyes and say, you want to know the truth about your condition? It's a lot worse than you even thought. It's going to take nothing less than a new life. That's how serious our condition is. But doesn't that resonate with what you already know about yourself? And that is your longings are, are, cannot be satisfied by anything earthly, by anything finite, by anything that has limits. We have a, an amazing capacity for evil. And that's the condition that we are in. Nothing less than a relationship with Jesus Christ described in terms of having died with him and buried and raised with him through faith can suffice to bring us into life and so the problem that the Colossians were facing here is that some people were telling them, well, your relationship with Christ is not quite enough. You need something else. You need to add something on top of it to be truly satisfied. Particularly in this passage, rituals, experiences, and rules. You see some rituals in verses 16 and 17. You see some experiences in verses 18 and 19. And you see some rules in verses 20 to 23. And that's how we're going to structure our message as we look at this passage. That nothing can replace a relationship with Christ. Rituals can't replace a relationship with Christ. Experiences can't rela replace a relationship with Christ. And rules cannot replace a relationship with Christ. Let's start from the verse 16. That rituals cannot replace a relationship with Christ. First of all, what were these rituals? He says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. What he's, he's speaking to people in the Colossian church who were still in, uh, steeped in the Jewish religion. Which in the Old Testament had certain festivals. There's, there's certain laws about what you could eat and what you couldn't eat. Certain ceremonial laws. 
And some people insisted that these were still necessary to keep in order for a person to have a right relationship with God. And Paul is saying this, don't let anybody, don't let anybody disqualify you, don't let anybody judge you or exclude you based on the fact that you find your satisfaction in Christ alone. Upon what basis does he say this is possible? He says, because these things are merely the shape of the reality, and the reality is Jesus. And let me explain what this means here. Let's take a festival, for example. One of the main festivals that they would observe was the Passover. And the Passover was instituted when the people of Israel, who had been enslaved in the land of Egypt, God rescued them from their captivity in Egypt and brought them out. But in order to bring them out, God had to bring the people of Egypt through a series of plagues. And the last plague was going to be the death of the firstborn son in, in all of Egypt. Well, the problem was that the people of Israel were in Egypt too, and so their sons were not exempt. And so to spare the lives of the firstborn sons of the people of Israel living in the land of Egypt, God said, here's what you need to do. You need to take a spotless lamb. You need to sacrifice that lamb. You need to take the blood of the lamb and paint it on the posts and lintel of your homes. And when the death angel sees the blood, he will pass over you. And that's why they call it the Passover. And what Paul is saying is this. Don't you see that Jesus is that spotless lamb? Don't you remember when John the Baptist came as the forerunner of Jesus and he saw Jesus? He said, behold, the Lamb of God. He's the one that takes away the sin of the world. No lamb could take away the sin of the world. Jesus is the one to whom this festival is pointing. And so now that Jesus has come, that's what this festival was all about. People that insist on keeping these festivals apart from Jesus Christ, Paul says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you with regard to those festivals. What about the Sabbath? Sabbath was an important part of, of their lives. What did the Sabbath point to? After creating the, the world in six days, the Bible tells us that God rested. The word Sabbath means to cease, to desist, to take, to take a rest. What this is pointing to is the ultimate rest that Jesus provides for those who have been striving and laboring to build their own righteousness before God. And now that Christ offers his righteousness, we can have rest. He is the ultimate Sabbath. That's why in Matthew chapter 11 he said this, Come to me, all of you that are, are weary and heavy laden, and I, Jesus says, will give you rest. Paul saying, don't let anybody pass judgment on you with regard to these festivals. With regard to these new moon uh, observances, with regard to the Sabbath. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the ultimate substance of all these things. And yet it remained a problem for people to think they needed something more outside of Christ. You see, no ritual can replace a relationship with Christ. It'd be almost like this. Suppose you needed a new laptop, computer. And so you ordered it, and it finally comes in that beautiful white box. It just seems so nice. It slides out just so perfectly and it smells new and nice. And you take that box and you're careful not to scratch the cardboard because it's so beautifully smooth. And, and, and you take that box and, and you pick it up and you throw the computer away and just keep the box. Right? Paul is saying, if you take the ritual and rip Christ out of it, and just keep this empty ritual. It's like clinging onto the box of something. It's just the container. Jesus is the substance. And if Jesus is not in it, it's not worth it. No ritual 
that you can engage in can possibly save you or satisfy you or fulfill you or complete you. Only Jesus can. So, so Paul is saying, don't let anybody think, you, think that you're somehow inferior because you're not keeping these. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, not only his, the first point here is that no ritual or rituals cannot replace a relationship with Christ. The second issue that we see here is in verse 18. And that is, he's dealing with experiences. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous minds and not holding to fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. What is Paul talking about here? He's saying there are some people that were had this extremely strict diet and were really big on having these mystical experiences. Or really obsessive about, and the, the uh, word that he uses here is about angels. We don't know everything about the particular false teaching that was going on in this church, but what we do know is there was this unhealthy obsession with obscure things that was distracting people from Christ. And, and using irony, Paul says, you're making such a big deal out of angels that you're worshiping angels. You're making such a big deal out of your own personal vision, out of your own, how, how self-disciplined you are. You're making such a big deal out of these mystical experiences that you've had and nobody else, and, and you're judging other people on the basis of that. Paul says, don't let anybody do that to you. The word disqualify here, it could be used in, a, in an athletic context. Like someone blowing the whistle and saying, hey, illegal move. Be like, say you're playing soccer. And suddenly someone comes out with a ref shirt on, pretending to be a referee, blows the whistle, comes up to you and says, hey, are you wearing blue wool socks? Like, no. <laughs> okay, then you're disqualified. What are you talking about? Those aren't the rules. <laughs> Paul is saying, don't let anybody make up their own rules. Don't let anybody disqualify you based on some arbitrary experience or preference they had. Going on in detail about their own visions. Here is the effect of that kind of thinking. Instead of creating humility, instead of providing unity, that such a person has actually puffed up without reason by their sensuous minds. The problem with these kinds of private mystical experiences is that instead of giving people humility, instead of making people united, they made people proud. It's easy for us to get obsessed with these fantastical kinds of experiences. Some of you might say, well, what about Paul himself? Didn't he have some incredible experiences? We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul indicates that he had this experience in which he was exalted up to the third heaven and saw visions and heard things that could not be uttered. And yet in context, what Paul is saying is, even though I've had experiences like that, I'm not going to boast in them. I'm actually going to do the very opposite. I'm going to boast in my weakness. 
He said this, this is from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses, verse 7 through 10. Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, Paul writes, for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, the experiences that Paul had, he did not use as an excuse to puff himself up or to wield his experience over the experience of others. Instead, he said, I'm going to glory in my weakness so that I can exalt Christ's strength. The other problem we see with these people who are obsessed with their own experiences in verse 19 is this, and not holding fast to the head. You see, the sneaky, subversive thing about this kind of thinking, exalting your personal, private experience over the sufficiency of Christ, is that it does not outrightly deny Christ, it does not come out and right, right out right and say, Jesus isn't good enough. Here's what it does. It says, oh yes, Jesus, that's great. But have you had a vision? Have you had some kind of dream though? Haven't you had some sort of ecstatic experience? No? Oh, how disappointing. Paul's saying, don't let anybody do that to you. How could you be disappointed with being buried and risen with Christ? How could you be disappointed with knowing that in Christ you have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? How could you be disappointed in knowing that in Christ you have the power to live the life that God wants you to live? How could you let anyone feel that you're somehow inferior because you haven't had their private experience? That's what Paul is saying. And furthermore, it bypasses the importance of the interconnectedness of a church. Look what he says in verse 19. He says, not holding fast to the head. In other words, he's kind of dissolving the bond between him and Christ and, and connecting his bond to these experiences that he has and, and from whom the whole body, here it is, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. But listen, what Paul is saying is, our spiritual growth and our spiritual vitality is linked to other brothers and sisters in Christ. We need each other. And it is no shame when a believer says, I cannot grow, I cannot be who God wants me to be in isolation. My personal experiences are insufficient to bring about the growth that wants, God wants in my life. Someone says this. A commentator on this passage says, It is no shame when a Christian finds that he or she cannot grow spiritually without support and help from fellow believers. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. Such a person, by being obsessive about their own personal, private, mystical experiences, are not holding fast to Christ as the head and have withdrawn from the nourishment and interconnectivity of other people who are following Jesus. But my friends, we can tend to be drawn to these kinds of things and think somehow that they trump our experience, our, our relationship with Jesus Christ. But no experience, no personal, private, mystical experience that someone can have can replace their relationship with Jesus Christ. And thirdly, beginning of verse 20, rules cannot replace a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Paul is saying, he's quoting the, the mantra of these people in this church, do not handle, in verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He's saying there are certain things that they have extended from the law of God and saying these are necessary for you to keep in order to have a right, right relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, I think in our culture today, especially in our culture of, of doubt and despair, it can be very easy to gravitate toward a concrete, easy, and definable list of rules to measure our satisfaction and performance. Give me some nice hooks to hang my moral satisfaction on and I'm done. Make it easy for me. Tell me what to do. Paul is saying this, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, you submit to such regulations? In other words, what Jesus has done for you is enough. Having died and been raised with Christ, now you do have the life that you need. The problem behind these rules is that they underestimate our problem and they overestimate our ability to keep them. Now, to be clear here, Paul is not, he's not saying that there are, there's no good in setting standards for ourselves. There's no good, in, he's not saying that there is something inherently wrong with setting boundaries for ourselves. Paul himself gives such boundaries. He's not saying that there's anything wrong in actually having commands. You look at beginning in, in verse 3, Paul is giving specific commands about things that we are to do and not do. The problem that Paul is addressing is the thought that these commands can give you the power to have a right relationship with God. There is no power outside your relationship with Jesus Christ. You notice the logic of Paul's uh, exhortations in the following uh, chapter. When he says in verse, look, for instance in verse 18, he speaks to family members. He speaks to wives who are to submit themselves to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. He speaks to children to obey their parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. He speaks to bondservants, to work, not with eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing who? The Lord. What is he doing? He's relating our duties and our relationship with each other to what Jesus has done for us and who Jesus is. And that's why it is true that rules in themselves cannot replace a relationship with Christ. You could pile on all the rules you can think of and you only begin thinking of more, your conscience won't be satisfied. Only through Jesus Christ can we have the power to live the life that pleases God. We do live in a, a time when we tend to feel very guilty, very dissatisfied with ourselves. Um, I read that if people, out of 100 people that are prescribed a medication, one-third of them won't even fill the medication. And out of the remaining people that, that, that fill it, the, that medication, the two-thirds, the rest will fill it, but half of those won't take the medication. And then, those same people, if they have a pet, will be very uh, diligent to give their own, if their pet has a medication, will be more diligent to give their pet medication than themselves. I was reading about this and the person was making this observation that people must feel very, be very steeped in wretchedness, their own sense of despair. It is true 
that we labor often under a load of guilt. And we could tend to think that rules can release us from that. Paul's point here is this. You've died with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. And that is enough. If you're already a believer in Jesus Christ, we need to battle the tendency to revert to our tendency to think that our own achievements can help us. We should ask ourselves this. Do I find more delight in Christ than in my achievements? Do I judge other people by comparing their standards and their experiences to mine? Do I draw on my relationship with Christ, being dead to sin and alive with Christ for the power to change, or do I seek to do this on my own resolve? You see, the Bible reveals to us the need in our lives that is so deep that no mere ritual can satisfy No mere experience can fill that hole. No set of rules can bring us to where we need to be. But only Christ can. And what can give us the power for true satisfaction? It's our relationship with Christ. The passage after this that Paul begins going to, and this is going to be the emphasis for our, in the coming weeks, is in verse, chapter 3, verse 1, says, that says, If then you have been raised with Christ... This is what will give you power. This is what will give you hope. This is what will give you the divine energy to do what God wants you to do. It's your having been raised with Jesus Christ. It's the new life that you enjoy in him. And that is why we should be careful to not think that any experience, ritual, or rule can replace our relationship with Christ. My wife and I uh, recently bought a home and we've been doing some repairs on the home. And if you've ever done home repairs, you know that these things can get extensive. Now, this isn't the case with our home, but it could be that you might have a home when you open up a wall to do a repair, and then you get in there, and you, you find some rot or something. And then you open up some little more, and you find that that rot is extensive. And you're having to tear things apart and replace things. What if you're in the sort of circumstance where you had a home and eventually you discovered it was so rotten, the whole thing had to be rebuilt? That is, that is the news that the Bible has for human nature, for our, us as individuals. What we need is not a patchwork of experiences. What we need is not a list of rules. What we need is not going through the process of rituals. What we need is new life in Jesus Christ. And that is where we find maturity. And this is what God can do for us because of the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ.